I'd like to begin by welcoming those watching online right now from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains. My name is Joe, and if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. And with that, uh, please just pray with me right now. Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you, God. Thank you so much. Lord, today um, we think of uh, the president. We pray for a special mercy and grace upon him. We pray that you would preserve his health, his mental faculties, um, and that you would help him to make good and wise decisions, Lord. And Lord, we think of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving at home and abroad. We pray, Lord, for their safety, protection, and salvation, because so many of them, they don't know you. They don't know you. They're, they're just so lost, and, and I pray that you would save them. And Lord, we think of the persecuted church right now, Leah Sherabu, um, being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian. Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran because he's a Christian. Pastor Wang and John imprisoned in China because they're Christians, Lord, for our brothers and sisters in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in the South Sudan, in Eritrea, just to name a few places. God, please help them. And right now in this moment, Lord, we, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains alongside of them. Help them, God. Strengthen them, Lord. And today, Lord, I pray you'd help us to hear from you. Whatever competing thoughts, whatever anxieties, whatever things may be battling for our attention, I pray that you would just give us a clear mind to hear from you. And I pray that you would help me to say what you want me to say. And, and Lord, if there's something I shouldn't say, don't, don't let me say it, God. And if there's something that I need to say that I, I haven't even planned on saying, I pray that you would give me a word. I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit and that you'd help us all, Lord, today. We need you. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we are in the Gospel of John. This is part five. It's the fifth sermon that I have preached in John's Gospel. It will take a total of five sermons we're going to finish the, the first chapter today. So uh, I told you guys in the very beginning, it's, it's a very dense chapter one, but we're going to make it through today. And if you're joining us for the first time, you should know we love expository preaching here at Lynchburg City Church. That's where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's awesome. So I hope that you enjoy it if it is your first time. But we are in John's Gospel. Once again, part five, chapter one. We're going to start in verse 35. I'm just going to jump right into it. I'll give a little bit of background information uh, just in a second to get you caught up to speed. So bear with me. But uh, chapter one, verse 35, it says, The next day, again, John, now this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. This is the reverse goal. This is 
the backwards goal, the inverted goal of John the Baptist that he seems to have and that I would argue should be our reverse goal in life, in work, in play, in ministry. But what I see doesn't exactly happen or play out that way. You see, today, even in the church, we don't usually look at things this way. We don't approach things this way. We certainly don't measure them this way. We'll tend to talk about a church, and if it's good or not, based on how many seats we fill on Sunday, or how big the budget is, how many programs that they have, et cetera, et cetera. And those things I should mention aren't necessarily bad things at all. They're just some observations that I've made. For, for instance, there's a tendency to measure success when it comes to ministry in the church sometimes by the standards and the criteria that the secular world would apply and use. But I'm reminded of a few things when I look at these type of Bible passages right here. For starters, we certainly have to acknowledge that there are a lot of churches that are a mile wide, but only an inch deep. Let that sink in for a minute. There are. There are a lot of churches that are a mile wide, but only an actual inch deep. And furthermore, there are a lot of churches that check all the blocks when it comes to what an outsider might say makes it successful. But the question then becomes, how much does that really matter? And my short answer, I don't think it matters all that much. Or rather, I don't think it should And the basis for my argument comes from this passage today. The Bible story that we're looking at today helps inform us on this issue and and the practical nature of what we should be doing when it comes to ministry through the example of Jesus. Last week we were talking about John the Baptist and the humility of, of John the Baptist and his ministry. Now up until now, keep this in mind, John the Baptist, everybody knows John. He's the guy that has like the 30 million Instagram followers. He is super popular. Nobody knows who Jesus is right now. And what we see in these opening verses are nothing short of John the Baptist intentionally losing market share. That's what's occurring here. His following is diminishing. His popularity is lessening. His brand is tanking. And yet this all seems to be precisely his goal. In case it's not clear from the opening two verses when he literally points out Jesus to his own followers and then they leave him to go follow Jesus. All you have to do is just skip ahead to chapter 3 verse 30 where he says that Jesus, he must increase and I, I John the Baptist, I must decrease. In other words, when it comes to doing ministry, when it comes to living missionally, when it comes to making fishers of men, we, we really can't measure success the way the world does. Because if we do that, we would say about the man that Jesus said there is no one greater born of women than John the Baptist. We would say that guy, he stinks at doing ministry. That's what we'd say. We'd say this guy's the worst. I mean, do you know how many followers he's lost on social media? And even worse, he seems to be intentionally trying to tank his own brand. 
We tell this guy, John the Baptist, he needs to enroll in some seminary classes and he needs to listen to some Christian podcasts. He needs to stop making those reels each week about all the stuff he's talking about because that's not helping him. That's not helping his brand. The stuff that John the Baptist talks about, that's just making him less popular and more of a target. And yet, this is his goal. And I think he's totally right. Despite saying and doing things that are counterintuitive and against the grain. And that is because biblical truth has always been viewed as foolishness and a stumbling block to the proud and to the arrogant. And so, verse 38, Jesus turned. Remember the two guys that he pointed out? Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Here's the question that Jesus asked them. What are you seeking? Now understand this, that when he asked this question, it's more than just a surface level answer. And by implication, there is more than a surface level answer needed. And that is because, as we'll see today, people who follow Jesus oftentimes are following him or seeking after him for for the wrong thing. Just like today, there's many people who follow Jesus who are seeking the wrong thing. Today, this is commonly understood through various word of faith and prosperity gospel teachers who say things like, hey, if you sow a seed, man, God will give it back to you a hundredfold. You'll get it all back. And then that makes people like one of my mom's friends decide to just give away her entire retirement to some TV charlatan flying around on his private jet staying in $25,000 a night presidential suites. And so, asking them this question, what are you seeking? We understand it as perhaps the most important question that anyone could ask. Or as one commentator noted, it is the existential question of everyone who encounters Jesus. What are you seeking? Jesus poses this question. And they respond with, there in verse 39, where are you staying at? And then he says, come and see. He says, come and you will see. He doesn't mean simply, yeah, just come and I'll show you my Airbnb. Just come and I'll show you my hotel, you know, where I'm crashing for tonight. That's not what he means, but rather in the mind of Jesus and the mind of John, this meant, if you will truly come to me, you will see. And what you will see won't just be where I lodge, but what you will see will be a spiritual reality. You will have spiritual sight. The same thing is going to get said later on in verse 46. Here's the point. When it comes to doing ministry today, there are a lot of ideas out there about what it should look like, what makes it successful. The world has their own metrics for how to measure. And John the Baptist, well, he has a very different approach, which is counterintuitive to most people. But unfortunately, even in the church today, we face many misunderstandings that attach themselves to our thinking when it comes to how we should do this. 
come and see type ministry when it comes to living missionally. I remember talking to, to one guy who told me he had approached one of the, the leaders at his church about mentoring, about discipleship. And the only thing the pastor would do is make him read books and then give him a test afterwards, give him an exam, multiple choice. And, and listen, I love books. I'm not anti-test taking. But when we look at the example of Christ, that's not typically a common thing that we usually see. Like, like Jesus, he does a lot of a different things to teach his followers about the kingdom of God. But I just, I don't remember a whole lot of stories where he tells them, listen, I'm a little too busy to hang out with you. So instead, just read this book and then I'll give you a test afterwards. So yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings when it comes to doing ministry. A lot. That the church just gets flat out wrong in some cases. There's a, a gentleman who's a member here at the church. He's, he's in this room right now, and he gave me permission to tell this story. I'm not going to use his name. Um, but he had shared a few years ago he was going to a church in this city. Um, before I met him, before he started coming here and getting involved. And, and to be fair, this church was very open and honest uh, about their goal. Uh, and really their main goal is just racial reconciliation. And he reached out to one of the pastors about the possibility of, of maybe getting to meet up with him for mentorship or discipleship or, or counseling. And the pastor told him that it would probably be more beneficial if he found someone else to do that who looked more like him. Ethnically. Because that specific pastor, he really just tried to invest the, the bulk of his time into mentoring persons that look like him. You see, when it comes to doing ministry, we don't just have misconceptions. Sometimes we get it straight up wrong, as illustrated by the previous story of a real church in this city. You see, at the core of Jesus' ministry is this central idea of come and see, come and see, as he says here in verse 39. Here's what this is all about, this come and see ministry, this living missionally, and that is characterized by inviting people into your lives. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's inviting them into his lives and letting them see and hear the gospel. And the reason is because there are a lot of things you just can't learn unless you get to observe and see and hear. And don't get me wrong, just to be clear, because someone's going to get upset with me, books aren't bad. But man, there's, there's something about seeing and getting to observe that is just very illuminating. And some of you, I think you might know what I'm talking about. Because you grew up and all you got to see in your family were your parents fighting. Some of you grew up and you never got to meet your dad. Let alone ever hear him pray or read you a Bible story. And what I've come to understand is that for many people in the church, they feel inadequate when it comes to doing ministry. They sometimes feel like, oh, I've got nothing to teach. I've got nothing to offer. And part of the problem 
for that sort of thinking is because you, you don't fully understand what God's done in your life. No, no, yes, you know you're saved. Yes, I'm sure you understand the gospel, but maybe because of guilt or shame or just discouragement, you just don't feel qualified. You don't feel like you have anything to offer. And I'd like to speak to that person right now. I'd like to speak to that person who, who, who just it, it always burdened down by those type of doubts or those thoughts because in living missionally in this gospel-centered come-and-see ministry mindset that Jesus demonstrates for us, it isn't about being qualified, but rather allowing Christ to qualify you. Or in other words, sometimes living missionally looks like Jesus inviting his people into his life literally as he says, come and see. I believe at the heart of gospel, intentional, missional living is inviting people into the everyday parts of your life and then having gospel intentional conversations. Or as Jesus would say, just come and see. Come and spend some time with me, dude. That's why I regularly tell people, young guys, where are my young guys at? Young guys, I'm talking directly to you right now. Young guys, you should. I would encourage you. Get in the way older dudes. You're like, I can ask an older dude to hang out with me. You, you can, and you're encouraged to. I tell people all the time, the people I usually spend the most time with are the people that just get in my way. You should do that, young dudes. Young ladies, where you at? Young ladies, I see you, okay. Young ladies, get in the way of older ladies. You should do that. You say, I can, I can do that? Yeah, you, you, you can do that. I would encourage you to do that. I could, I could like ask some, one of the older girls or married girls if I could hang out with them. You could. I know it's crazy. You can do that. You should do that. Not that hanging out with your peers isn't fun, right? But there's something about finding someone maybe who's in a little bit different stage of life to be able to help you like navigate the chapter that you're in right now. Okay? And I'm sure like God loved like your 22-year-old RA, but there's probably like only so far they might be able to take you and you want to go to that next level in your walk with Jesus. Yes, you should get in the way, young ladies, of other ladies with different life experiences. And say, can, can, I, um, can I just come and see and spend time with you? Maybe I can help you like do some house cleaning or, or just help you like go grocery shopping or, or what, like whatever. people ask me, what does it look like? Sometimes it looks like opening up your house and letting people come into your life and just see it and giving them an opportunity to watch, to watch and see how you treat and interact with your significant other. To come and see wives, how you treat your husbands. To come and see husbands, how you treat your wives. You say, Joe, that's, that's just too simple. Anybody could do that. Yes, indeed. And here is why it matters. It matters because for the majority of people sitting in this room right now, including myself, they never got the chance to come and see these sorts of gospel-centered relationships. For many people in this room, when they, when they got to come home, and they saw their dad growing up, if he was there at all. What they saw was an abusive dad. Verbally, 
physically, sexually. The only time that dad ever touched them or mom was to inflict pain or hurt. And they have no idea what gospel-centered relationships should look like. And I remember hearing a story from one pastor. I had people from the church over one Saturday night. And uh, he could tell one of the, the young ladies, she seemed a little off. He asked her if she was okay. And uh, she said, I've never seen anything like this before. He said, anything like what? People praying. You've never seen people pray? I've, I've never seen a family pray, let alone sit down to have a meal. So one of the reasons, in case you're wondering why um, regular people, I host small group at my house every Tuesday night and have for the last almost 10 years, is because I constantly hear so many people tell me they grew up in a church and, man, they never got invited to anything let alone a pastor's house. They never once stepped inside someone's house from their local church. They never had someone extend an invitation to them. I got so convicted. This come and see example of Christ. See, this isn't something that should be the exception to the rule. It should be normative among the people of God. And so my question is this. Who's invited you into their lives to come and see? And better yet, who can you invite into yours? Because at the, at the heart of this, come and see mindset of Christ is this idea of sharing our lives with one another. This is what the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. He'd say, Thessalonians, we didn't just give you the gospel. We gave you our very lives, Thessalonians. And unfortunately today, that is a significant missing ingredient from most churches and many church leaders and pastors and members. We come in, punch our 90-minute clock on Sunday, and then the rest of the week, that's my time, totally divorced and cut off from the people of God, from the family of God, from the church of God. And all it does is breed these individualistic Christian lives. That's why I regularly say, you ever heard the, the saying, church is like a family? You've heard that before. Church is like a family. I'd say absolutely not. It's not like a family. It is a family. That's the language of the New Testament. You go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 and 2, just read it. I didn't make this up. God set this up. God got this whole thing going. And, and, and what makes this so hard is it's an uphill battle to be like Jesus and John the Baptist because so many Christians and even Christian churches, they don't buy into this way of thinking and instead make their entire focus about the experience of the consumer. But I promise you this, this experience of the consumer and creating Christian content that everyone will want to hear and won't offend anyone isn't something you find by the example of John the Baptist, let alone Jesus. Jesus' ministry starts with an invitation to just come and see. Come and see. And so it says in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found 
his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and he said, you are Simon, son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. So one of the two disciples mentioned in this passage, he's identified as Andrew. Andrew, the brother of Peter. And the text, however, doesn't tell us the name of the second disciple. That guy goes unnamed. And since Andrew, you should know, works in a fishing business with these two other guys, James and John. And and since John the evangelist is the one writing the story, and he really doesn't usually like to mention himself at all, it's led many commentators to believe that the second guy here in the story is, in fact, the guy writing this story, John, John the evangelist. It's hanging out there with, with Andrew. And Jesus, he begins this relationship by saying, what are you seeking? And now we hear Andrew say to his brother, we found him. We found him. We found Messiah. And of course, remember at first, they were only seeking where he was staying. Very superficial. The point is, if you come to Jesus, you see. If you come to Jesus, you will see a spiritual reality. You will see the keys that unlock the ultimate meaning of all things. And then in verse 42, um, there's no explanation in John's gospel why Jesus changes his name. Uh, why he changes Simon's name to Cephas, Aramaic, Peter, the, the Greek. Uh, no explanation. Not like in, in Matthew 16, 18, where there is an explanation, but none here in this text. And so he comes and he changes Simon's name, which is, it's a bold move, okay? Like most people would be like, I just met this guy? I mean, can you imagine? You're at a party. And someone says, hi, this is my friend, uh, Josh Rains. Josh Rains. And then at the, the very same time, you meet them and they say, your name will no longer be Josh Rains. You will now be known as the Rainmaker. <laughs> You'd be like, who does this guy think he is? He can't give me a nickname the very first time I meet him. Way too personal. Who does he think he is? But in the question lies the answer. See, the point in the specific passage is this. Jesus has authority to do whatever he wants to do. Including the authority to give you whatever name he wants to. That's the point. Jesus has that sort of authority. The point is the glory of Christ, not the glory of Peter. Furthermore, about this passage, did you notice anything else when Jesus gives him this name? Notice anything else? He says, you shall be called Peter. He, He doesn't say, is it okay if I call you Peter? He says, you shall be called Peter. Not if you like it, or or if it works out. But if you find it offensive, you you don't have to be called that. Or, I'm not going to make you take this name only if you're good with it. That's the point. And it is the total and absolute authority of Jesus to not just choose Simon and name Simon, but as Mr. Piper would also point out, to determine Simon's destiny. Jesus has authority unilaterally to command the allegiance of anyone. It shouldn't be a surprise, right? I mean, after all, God says, mountains at creation move, and they move. Seas come no further. Let this establish your boundaries. And they listen. He commands the wind and the weather, 
it shouldn't be a shock that he has this sort of authority. And of course, later on, he will tell his disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's real authority. But you've got to be careful, lest you have this and develop this fatalistic Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh type of thinking in which you make the mistake that, well, okay, well, if that's true, then I don't have to choose him. No, you do. You do have to respond to the gospel. But what Jesus is saying is, when you do choose me, when you do come to me, when you do receive me, when you come and you really see, then you will know that it was I that chose you first. I mean, you hear me pray it every single Sunday, do you not? We love you because you... Yeah, come on, that'll preach. This is the type of authority that we're dealing with. Or as Jesus would say in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If the Father doesn't come and draw you, you don't come. If the Son doesn't come for you, you don't. That's what this text is saying about Jesus. Changing Simon's name. Jesus has been given all authority. He is our great king who holds our destiny in his hands. And that might sound a little scary at first. To imagine someone having the authority to hold your destiny in their hands. To be dealing out the cards of life. But I would submit to you it's not. I would submit to you there is great peace to know that Jesus has this type of authority. And the reason that you can trust the one dealing the cards of life is because you know him and he knows you and he is good and he loves you so much. And so, verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Jesus says to Philip, follow me. And here's the thing about being a Christian. You're not the one in charge. And if you like being in charge, and that's your natural personality, and you're kind of like control freakish, like some of us in here, me, you don't want to let go of the steering wheel? This can be hard, right? He says, Philip, follow me. See, being a Christian is not about being the leader. It's about following Jesus. And it's great to believe in Jesus, but it means something totally different to follow him. You know, I remember when one of my family members died a few years ago. And at the funeral, the pastor who... I'll just say I had a very different take on truth than he did. He proceeds to tell everyone at the funeral that this family member of mine was in heaven, that he was a really great guy, a good Christian, and I'm thinking, this family member of mine? This guy? This guy never took one step to follow Jesus his whole life. And I'm hearing this pastor say how we all know he went to heaven, and every single one of you guys, you're all going to go to heaven too, and you got nothing to worry about. And I'm like, did I just really hear this guy nonchalantly tell everyone that they've got nothing to worry about? Here's what I want to say. If you're not following Jesus 
you should be concerned. If you're not following Jesus, you should worry about your eternal state. If you're not following Jesus, you should have doubts about whether you're truly a Christian or not. The world will tell you to follow your heart. The Bible will say the heart is deceitfully wicked. And understand this. I am not concerned about if you believe in him. We know even the demons do, right? I'm concerned whether or not you're following him. Because these two mean two radically different things in Scripture. So, Philip, he goes, he tells his friend what he's heard. Philip found Nathanael, verse 45, and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah, yeah, right. Philip said to him, Come, Nathaniel, just, just come and see. Like, you've got to meet this guy. And Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these, Nathaniel? And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This reference, of course, to Genesis 28, Jacob's ladder. Jacob has this encounter with God there. God reveals himself to Jacob there. And Jesus says, Nathaniel, you know that story, right? Of course I know that story. Oh, well, you're going to see way more than that, Nathaniel. Right? Because in seeing me, God will be revealed that much more to you. You think God was revealed to your great, 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 great grandfather, Jacob? Oh, he's going to be revealed so much more now that I'm here. So Philip goes, he tells Nathaniel about Jesus. And Jesus, he makes these comments. An Israelite, indeed, of whom there's no deceit. Did you catch that? Verse 47. See, what Jesus is saying is this. Nathaniel, I know you. I know you. You say what you feel. What you see is what you get with you, Nathaniel. See, Nathaniel's not the guy that's two-faced and Jesus knows what he said about Nazareth. He knows how he feels about the town. And, and he's not commenting on Nathaniel's sinlessness or even the town of Nazareth. He's commenting on the character of Nathaniel. Nathaniel's not coy. He's not deceitful. He's not a pretender. Nathaniel is a straight shooter. He just tells it as it is. And Jesus knew this about Nathaniel's heart. He knew this about his life. Before he ever met him, Jesus knows Nathaniel. And here is what the story shows us about Jesus. He knows. He knows. Each and every one of you. He knows. He knows what's happening to you. He knows the bad decisions that you've been making. He knows it all. You see, you will never be in a situation in where Jesus is not fully aware of what's going on in your life. This is Nathaniel's story. 
love this text. I love Nathaniel's response in this come and see moment in which the eyes of his heart are illuminated. And he's like, you're him. You're him. You're Messiah. You're, you're the one that though I've learned about since I was a little boy in, like, in, in Sunday school class. I know that you're him. You see his excitement just popping off the page. This is his story. This is how he meets Jesus. And today people, they, they meet Jesus and they're introduced to Jesus in all sorts of ways by all sorts of people. And when it comes to people's stories, when it comes to their, we call it their testimony, sometimes in Christianity we, ha- we have a, uh, sometimes a way to make people feel bad about their testimony. And some of you, I think you even know what I'm talking about. Like you were, you were the kid who grew up and, and, and this was probably your story, right? You were like, well, I became a Christian and then I struggled with sin like one time I told my parents I was going to go to bed, but instead I stayed up an extra 45 minutes, but I felt really bad. I confessed my sin to my parents, and the next day I repented, and I never did it again. Like some of you, that, that's, that's your testimony. Like all the homeschool kids in here. Right? Yeah? And then you've got the other kid, right? The other kid, we, we always love to put the other kid on the pedestal. He comes in, he's like, yeah, I was in a gang. I had tattoos. Went to prison for a while. They called me Prison Mike. You got the office reference there. Then it was terrible. All the Dementors. I was in a dark place. Then I met Jesus in prison. And all the homeschool kids are, are hearing that guy's story. And it's basically like watching their first rated R movie. They're like, oh my goodness. Right? This is Nathaniel's story. This is Nathaniel's testimony. And everyone, they have a different story. Everyone, they come to Jesus through a different path. No, and when I say different path, I mean not there's all roads lead to Jesus, but they all have different stories. Some have a harder life. Some have not as hard a life. Some make better decisions along the way. Some don't. But see, at the end of the day, what matters is that you got to Jesus. And what matters for those of us who've already gotten to Jesus is that we're helping people to get to him too. That's what making fishers of men is. That's what living missionally is. Even if it may cost us our popularity in the real life or on social media, what matters is that we are living our lives for Christ. Inviting people to come and see. To come and meet this man named Jesus. My prayer, God, is that you would give us a burning passion to do that, to be like that, Lord. That that would be our greatest desire, to love you and our obedience to you. Lord, give us a passion for people that don't know you, people that don't love you, people that don't walk with you. God, please save them. Our moms, our dads, our brothers, our sisters. Please save them, Jesus. And please help us to live missionally. To apply this come and see example in our own lives. Forgive us, Lord, for the missed opportunities Forgive us, Lord, for the excuses that we've made for why we can't. And help us, Lord, to be faithful to you in every way through our lives. 
We pray this in your name. Amen.